Hello everyone. Uh, welcome to our third interview in the Roads to Law interview series. Our guest today is Cyrus Habib, uh, who is the Lieutenant Governor of the State of Washington in the U.S. Uh, Mr. Habib was a Rhodes Scholar here between 2003 and 2006, after which he went to study law at Yale Law School. Uh, he worked at a law firm called Perkins Coy in Seattle, in his hometown of Seattle after law school, and was engaged in the law in other ways before finally uh, leaving the law to join politics. Uh, he is the first Iranian-American to have been elected to state office in the U.S., and uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor Habib is also blind since has been totally blind since age eight. And I should mention at this juncture that um, given that I am blind as well, I reached out to him a few weeks before coming to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. And what was going to be a short conversation ended up being an hour long conversation in which I obtained a lot of advice from him about negotiating Oxford as a person with a disability. And the confidence and self belief that I acquired then has held me in good stead ever since. So thanks very much uh, for being with her with us here today, Lieutenant Governor. Uh, thank you so much. It's wonderful to talk to you again. So my first question to you is that uh, it is it, it, as follows. You have often described yourself as a three-time cancer survivor, the son of Iranian-American immigrants, and totally blind since age eight. Why uh, do you think it's been important for you to highlight these dimensions of your personality and how have they helped you become the person that you are today? Yeah, I, um, well, I think the first thing I'll say is that I usually will make reference to those elements of my identity in the context uh, also of pointing out the ways in which I also have enjoyed tremendous privilege. And so the way I usually frame it is to say that it is true that as a three-time cancer-surviving, fully-blind Iranian-American from a mixed-religion immigrant family, uh, I've faced obstacles and challenges that one could easily imagine. Um, but at the same time, uh, I uh, have I was I was born. Um, to parents who were graduate school educated. Um, my mother is now a judge. She was um, a practicing attorney for most of my uh, childhood. Um, we were upper middle class, um, and I grew up going to public schools in, you know, living just just a couple miles, literally just, just a couple miles away from Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. Um, so it gives you some sense of the kind of resources that our public school district had. Um, and so the reason I, oftentimes the reason I will talk about my life in those ways, both in terms of pointing out the deficits of privilege and or struggles um, or obstacles that I face, and also the ways in which I've experienced privilege is to try and introduce a more nuanced way for um, politicians and the public to think about this idea of privilege. Mm -hmm. That really, you know, uh, there is this desire, I think, oftentimes to have a very binary conception. Either you are a uh, traditionally privileged group or you're, or you're not. And the reality is that 
all of us in various ways experience life through the lens of privilege and also through the lens of struggle. Now, some are more, you know, some, some identities have a more structural relationship with oppression and, and, um, you know, and so it's not to deny that, for example, in the United States, um, because of our history of slavery and uh, and Jim Crow laws and other and other dynamics, that um, there's not a unique racial dimension to to privilege um, and a privileged dimension to racial identities. But it's just to say that it is it becomes quite, in my view, unproductive and even destructive in our politics for us to point the finger and say, you are X, therefore, you know, you're, you're privileged. Um, you are Y, therefore you're not. It both creates resentment in the person who's being alleged to be, um, privileged because they might look at their lives and say, yeah, but you know what? I've struggled with mental health challenges my whole life, or you know what? My, um, you know, I suffered child abuse. And that might not be as visible um, as someone being blind or someone being uh, Iranian-American, but it might be even more powerful for them. And then it also, to, the, to those who, to whom people point and say, you are the not privileged group, it can sometimes create a sense of uh, inevitable um, victimhood or victim kind of status in young people that can be disempowering. Right, right. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, my second question is that, uh, so you went uh, totally blind, as I said, at the age of eight, and you have often talked about how uh, your school, you share this story of how your school uh, school authorities did not want you to engage in the activity of sort of jumping from one bar to the other in the jungle gym because they were of the view that uh, it was risky for you and and you you talk about you've talk, talked very powerfully about how your mother's reaction to that became the kernel of your philosophy about your blindness and independence. So my question has two parts to it. One is, what was her response to that? And then secondly, what is your philosophy on blindness and independence? Yeah, so I, I tell this story pretty often uh, because it really was foundational for me. And in fact, um, you know, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think the first time I may have actually really told the story in, you know, in this, uh, in its full, um, form was, uh, in, in one of my Rhodes interviews. Oh. Um, and, and, and I will say, by the way, just as a, as a side note that, um, the Rhodes scholarship, the, the process of interviewing for it and going through that process, um, was, was really, really helpful to me in many ways later when I decided to go into public life because you have to, you know, really in order to win the Rhodes Scholarship, you have to determine how best to talk about your own life yeah. and to talk about, you know, your achievements and also your aspirations, but in a way that is, 
you know, inclusive and not off-putting. And so, um, so it is. It is a. It, it was a very, very important experience for me. So the the story is that you know I had recently become blind, and uh, it, you know all kids love to, you know, the favorite time of, of school for a third grader like I was is is recess time. The kids go out and play on the playground. Um, and the school wasn't thrilled with the idea of me doing that in part because they knew that I just recently become blind. Mm-hmm. Um, and in part because they knew my mother was a litigator. So, uh, so they, they thought it was too dangerous and they were worried that I would injure myself and so on. And so, um, I went home and told my parents, so, you know, they basically, they kept me on the sidelines while the other kids were playing. And so I went home and told my parents, this is what's happened. And my mom went to the school the next day and she told the principal of the school. And importantly, you know, she took me with her to the principal's office so I could learn from her how, you know, how, how to become an advocate for myself, which, you know, was, was useful. For example, later when I was at Oxford and had to advocate for myself with Oxford, which you've also experienced. Um, Mm -hmm. now, my mom said to the principal of the school, you know, I'm going to bring my son to your school over the weekend and teach him how to get around the playground and use all the playground equipment. And he's going to learn his way around as well as any other kid. And she said, you know, it may happen that my son may slip and fall and he may even slip and fall and break his arm. That's a fear that any mother has. But then she said, I can fix a broken arm, but I can never fix a broken spirit. And I tell that story, as I said, because it was so foundational for me in learning how to be an advocate for myself, but also in learning that I deserve to be included and that, you know, and I think it was so important that I learned that lesson early so that I would not internalize uh, the, this, this, this otherness, you know, and, and go down the path. I mean, my mom recognized quite, um, you know, quite intelligently that, you know, it's not just what happens inside the classroom that can determine, you know, the the um, the outcomes of a child. It's also all those social and cultural elements of formation. Um, and you know, one need only look at the four pillars of Cecil Rhodes's will for the characteristics of a Rhodes Scholar to to see that. You know, my mom really recognized what the founder recognized, which is that there's more than just academics, so that it's fine if you have a, it's wonderful that we have laws that protect the academic participation of people with disabilities, but those other parts that were memorialized in Rhodes's will, um, having to do with the ability to become a leader and to serve others and to participate physically in activities and so on, um, are, are as important. And so that's, to answer the second part of your question, I think it's really crucial in my view, um, not just for people with disabilities, um, but for all of us to have this experience of, of, of feeling included and welcome to chart our own path and to become leaders. Leaders doesn't mean you have to run for elected office, but you know, to be able to uh, use our own life experience to guide those who come after us and to serve those who are less fortunate in one way or another than we are. 
my third question to you is about something that you said uh, in response to uh, uh, in your interview to Preet Bharara last August as part of the Stay Tuned sort of uh, podcast episode series. And you spoke about how physical activity is one way. And this also picks up on what you were just saying, one way in which a disabled person can deal with feelings of insecurity that might arise on account of uh, their disability. So my question to you in light of this is, did you ever or have you ever encountered feelings of inadequacy or insecurity owing to your disability and how have you dealt with them? And the second part of that, this question is, um, have you ever felt the need to be an overachiever to go the extra mile in order to offset the impact of your disability or the deficit that they, that it may have created? Yeah, they're very good questions. I mean, I, um, you know, so I told the story, I told you the story about the playground and, and how that led to um, participation and, 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 you know, me having the, the skills to and, and the, the knowledge and the desire to advocate for my own inclusion in various ways. But what I don't often talk about is that what then happened is, um, you know, I went to kind of the, the, the opposite extreme, if you will, where, you know, I was so interested in and so desirous of inclusion and, and of, of fitting in mm -hmm. that I really didn't want to um, identify as being a person with a disability. You know, it was, it was, it felt to me, you know, and I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it, my parents, philosophy was let's you know make sure that you are fully accommodated mm -hmm. but then you know being blind should not be remotely close to the most important thing about you or the first thing that people think about you is you know that they would ne they never wanted me to be the blind kid you know and so you know but 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 then i you know, and teenage, your teenage years and, and your early adulthood, you know, is, is so wrapped up with insecurities anyway, that, that to me, then I kind of took it to that extreme of, of really not wanting to even be seen as blind. Um, and I'll tell you a story from Oxford. Um, so I was, uh, I was at the King's Arms. And um, the nice thing about Oxford is that I, I can talk about the King's Arms and with with ninety five percent confidence that it's still there, which you really can't do. In, in most, you really can't do with most other uh, college experiences. So, um, so, so I was at the King's Arms, and um, I was hanging out with a couple of Rhodes classmates, and then somehow we met these women who were, you know, also Oxford students. They weren't Rhodes scholars, and we were talking to them, and um, you know, and and so this this girl was flirting with me, and we were just kind of like this flirtatious conversation and so on. And then she said, after like fifteen or twenty minutes, she said, um, "You know, why are you, you know, why are you wearing sunglasses?" you know, inside, you know, or on a rainy day or something like that, like you must think you're, you know, pretty special or something, you know, something kind of witty and, and sort of sarcastic or something like that. And, um, and I, you know, so I realized, well, she doesn't know that I'm blind. We've been having this whole conversation. And then suddenly inside me was this really, really strong desire that she never find out that I'm blind, which is, you know, 
It's so crazy because obviously if you like this person and you want to hang out with them again, it's like it's the secret's going to come out. It's, it's not a really easy thing to conceal. Mm-hmm. You know, but I just had this like irrational sense of, you know, you I don't want her to know. That, I don't want to say do it. Do you think you know? that she might attach the presumption of asexuality to you because of your disability? Is that why you were concerned about telling her? I think I was, I think I I didn't, I I thought that it was an unattractive characteristic of me, right? I mean, it was, you know, yeah, I, I thought that it was something that would be unattractive and that maybe, you know, and maybe subconsciously I thought, well, you know, she's, you know, she's interested in me now, but maybe if she finds out I'm blind, then maybe she won't be, you know what I mean? Or whatever. And so, you know, kind of also sarcastic, like, well, you know, I, I can't remember what I said or something like, you know, don't, you don't think these look good or, you know, you know, something like that. And so then anyway, so, so they had, they ended up leaving and, and everything was fine. And then my friend, one of my closest friends in the world, mm-hmm. um, who is now also an elected official, Chase Boudin, who was in my Rhodes class, yeah. who just got elected district attorney of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So Chase was there and, uh, you know, he's probably my closest friend during, uh, during the, those, those years. He said to me, why didn't you, that was so weird. Why didn't you just say you're blind? You know? And I said, well, I don't know. You know, things were going so well. I didn't want to say anything. And he said, he said, well, I'm going to tell you something that's going to, I'm going to, I'm going to recommend a book to you. That's going to radically change your view of what it means to be blind. And he recommended this book by Helena Cronin, who's, um, was a scholar, I believe at the university of London and wrote this book called the ant and the peacock. And, um, it's, it's an, it's an amazing book and, uh, there's not time to go on into it in this podcast, but it's just to say, talks about the peacock in terms of evolutionary biology and saying that the peacock has these beautiful feathers that don't make sense, you know, they are actually um, a disability from an, from an evolutionary perspective because, um, you know, they, you would think that when a peahen is looking for a peacock, she would, you know, she would want to find one who is more camouflaged, so the babies would be more camouflaged to, to survive and, and avoid predators and so on, and yet that's not what happens, and they, the, the theory that she asserts is that actually there is an attraction um, that, that we have to someone who has overcome difficulty. Um, that actually what it is with the peacock is actually that if you can survive to mating age mm-hmm. with these beautiful, you know, brilliant, um, this brilliant plumage, then you um, actually have exhibited a kind of resilience and strength. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was a really powerful powerful idea for me. And um, that alongside some of the research that I was doing at Oxford around visuality, studying visuality in in the literary context, really changed how I thought about being blind and and having disability, which um, was was very powerful. Um, So the next question that I had nicely picks up on what you just said. So I, I saw this interview, I read about this interview that Michelle Hackman conducted of you and she also happens to be blind and she talks about how uh, you are able to exhibit radical uh, emotional nakedness and a high degree of radical self-acceptance. Those are the words that she uses. And I was just wondering, what is it that, and especially in light of what you just said, what is it that helped you cultivate that? And part of the reason why I'm asking this is also because um, if we look at the history of politicians with disabilities, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of notable politicians 
who had disabilities often tried to downplay or conceal the role that their disability played in their lives for example with fdr you know people often share stories of him trying to conceal the fact that he was on a wheelchair because he didn't want to sort of per- like th- the notion is that you can't play the part if you have a disability as a politician so what is your response to how you were able to cultivate these values eventually yeah so there's two ways to answer it one is on a personal level and two is on a political level because i heard you ask two two different questions so on the personal level what i would say is um that for me as a catholic the idea of our weakness is really powerful this idea that you know we are all um more fragile and weaker than we ever want others to know and understand and that i have the realization and a lot of this happened actually at oxford um when i had some time to reflect and uh, discern that you know as much as i strive in my life to exhibit strength and project power and and control and and all of those things and i can do everything that anyone else can do um that despite all of that i too like all of us that i also am weak that i also have um limitations and you know they're not just related to being blind you know they are the the the, the fundamental human weaknesses and challenges and obstacles are 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 helplessness in the face of adversity mm-hmm. and so from a position of faith for me as a, as a person of faith it is then the belief that you know we are not solely in control mm-hmm. that we have free will but that we um we also uh must and and can and must surrender uh and that it is good to surrender to something greater so that's that's for me on a personal level yeah. how i came to have a better understanding of you know what you you can't litigate your way out of everything and you can't flex your 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 way out of everything so that's on a personal on a political level i think there's there's a, it's a fascinating point that you bring up about fdr and and others and you know for me the way that we did it um and i give a lot of credit to one of my advisors who helped me to think about this was which was um politically don't you know concede that blindness is a weakness try to think about what way in what ways has that made you more prepared for this position than your opponents and so um and not and i don't mean just in the way of well i've overcome obstacles in the kind of in the peacock way yeah. that i was talking about earlier but but even more concretely for um for voters and so the way that we did it was in in when i ran for lieutenant governor was we talked about you know how uh, as someone who became blind at a young age i learned how to listen you know that when you lose your eyesight you know you have to learn how to listen and i think that's something that people you know you probably have this experience yourself of people asking you this question like can you hear better than other but you have superhuman hearing and and this kind of thing and and you know that's not really true you know to the best of my knowledge on a physiological level but of course we do you know anytime we have one sensory deprivation we're going to have to rely on our other yeah. senses to give us the information that we need and so yeah. you know and so the idea is that that then means that you can listen and you hear and you listen and you're more careful mm-hmm. and it turns out that that's something that voters really want 
you know, and they felt, and in 2016, you think about the election here in the United States yeah. and the popularity of Trump and the popularity of Sanders even is this people saying, you know, people are not listening. Politicians aren't listening to us. They're doing what they want to do. They're not hearing us. Yeah. And so that was a way in which I could turn that, um, you know, into a political asset instead of a liability. Uh, so my next question is about your Rhodes experience, which you have alluded to multiple times. And just generally, what in, in your view now, looking back, were the highs and lows of the experience for you and lessons that you may have learned that have held you in good stead ever since? Yeah, I mean, so many people have talked about this uh, because it is, uh, you know, there are highs and lows to the Rhodes experience. Um, for me... A real challenge, um, uh, you know, I, I felt quite challenged with the academic environment, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in the sense that I came from uh, an American university and where um, it was a mixture of seminars and lectures, but very prescribed kind of taught courses. Um, and I... At Columbia, we did not have a senior thesis requirement. Yeah. And so I had never done like a really long form piece of, of research and scholarly writing. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I, and, and so that was one challenge that when I came to Oxford, I chose to do a research course and, um, and I really had no experience uh, doing that. And particularly, being on my own for so long and only meeting with my supervisor every few weeks um, and just nothing in between, no taught courses, nothing, just completely yeah. unstructured. Yeah. And, and so I, I just really struggled to be productive and to stay on task and to, and to you know, uh, bounce ideas off of people and, and think and, and learn in that way, which is kind of how I learn best is, is interactively. So that was one challenge. And then another challenge was that I, you know, and, and, and maybe this has changed. I hope this has changed. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, when I, uh, when I came to Oxford, there was no um, comparative literature program. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you study literature, you would either do it, you know, within the English department, if it was English language or, you know, modern languages, if it was, if it was European languages or basically, you know, they put everything at that time, maybe still they put all the other cultures in, in one big mm. bucket and call it uh, Oriental studies. Mm. So, you know, but the idea of like, you know, what I wanted to do stemming from my undergraduate studies was to be able to read Persian literature alongside French literature, alongside English literature, English language literature. Yeah. And, um, and so there was nothing like that. And so I ended up having to do something within an English program. Um, and so, so those were some real challenges for me where it was kind of the, the academic side of things. And, and I didn't really know, did I want to do a doctorate or not? And so on. So, and then, but, but I would say, you know, to me, what was really, really valuable was um, that during all that time when I wasn't being productive academically, mm -hmm. it turns out that gave me some space um, intellectually, personally, spiritually, emotionally to grow and develop. And I'd come from New York where everything is so fast. Columbia keeps, you know, the same time as, as all of New York City and everything is moving so quickly. And, and I was a pretty frenetic 
person in that way. And then, you know, Oxford just slows you down. It's just, it just slows you down, particularly if you're in a re- research course like the one I described. And so, yeah. you know, you just have these days and you kind of, and you have conversations and you, you think about your life and you do these things. And it, and it really was, um, was quite impactful for me. It, it made a big difference in, in helping me, as I mentioned earlier, think about my identity, think about my, my struggles and my weaknesses and my disability and all those things. Think about my faith. Yeah. You know, that's really when I began going to mass uh, as, as an adult. For the yeah. first time I went to mass as an adult was actually at Blackfriars. And so all of that was extremely, extremely valuable. And of course, the travel. Yeah, that is quite a uh, quite a wholesome answer. So thanks for that. Uh, my next question is, I wanted to pick up on something you've written in the past, and you say that I did not leave Oxford, Oxford's ivory tower for Yale in order to remain immersed in abstraction. I went to Yale to study how the instruments of law and public policy could improve a nation at war abroad and uh, uh, at uh, pain at home. Now, what I wanted to understand from you, the reason I read this out to you is because, as you have noted, a lot of people, when they, when they, when they come to institutions like Oxford and Yale, often do feel that as though they are in a bubble, uh, disconnected from the world around them. And you have noted that these were feelings that perhaps you dealt with as well. And my question, therefore, would be what what did you do concretely to not feel this way and to be able to be practically involved in the world around you? You know, for, for me, um, what happened was when I was an undergraduate at Columbia, I, you know, I studied both English literature and Middle Eastern studies. And, you know, I was going into my third year, my junior year of college. Uh, when 9-11 happened and I was living in New York, my third year of college and, you know, a few miles south of us, yeah. uh, the World Trade Center came down, the Twin Towers. And so, you know, that bifurcated my undergraduate experience and led to uh, me deciding to, to, to add the major in Middle Eastern studies, which I had not been intending to do earlier. I, I then studied with Edward Said and I um, got to, you know, uh, know a number of intellectuals in the you know, Middle Eastern American intellectuals. And, you know, we we talked about all of these ideas that are so important and foundational for me intellectually around Orientalism, around, you know, Foucauldian discourses and all these things. And yet, as it was all going on, and we all seemed to agree, and and all the professors would agree, and the students and everything, and protests on campus, you know, in D.C., you know, just, just, you know, a couple hundred miles uh, south was... Uh, the White House and Congress, and it seemed to none of this seemed to matter to them, and they just took us down this path to war in Iraq and um, you know the Patriot Act and all of these things. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, a few months after the war began in Iraq, I headed to Oxford and I got to experience, you know, how the world viewed America at that time. And, you know, I also did a lot of thinking about, you know, I love literature, I love thinking about identity in this context and so on. Mm-hmm. But you know what, I'm, you know, the, the Middle East is being torn apart. And, um, you know, America should be focusing on helping people um, the way I was helped, but in areas that are not as, as privileged as where I grew up. You know, they need to be giving more, for example, blind kids an opportunity rather than 
going and, and trying, in, you know, ineptly to bring democracy to places in the Middle East and, and killing hundreds of thousands in the in the process. So that then got me to thinking, you know what, this is all great. The theoretical stuff is great, but I've got to go and get involved in some way, shape, or form. And so I went back to the U.S. I studied, I went to Yale, studied law, and got involved. And one of the first things that I got involved with was a case um, that uh, that ended up requiring that U.S. currency become uh, accessible to people who are blind and low vision, yeah. which, you know, I just experienced in England, where they are, notes are different sizes. And mm-hmm. so, um, so that was probably the first way in which then I, when I came back, I, I started uh, becoming an, an activist and an advocate. Right. Uh, so my next question is about what you did after law school, which is that you worked at this law firm called Perkins Coy in Seattle, where you where you advise small businesses and startups. And I have two questions here. One is what influenced your decision to work at this law firm after law school? And then the second one is specific to being a lawyer uh, who is blind. So one statement of cynicism that blind lawyers often confront from potential employers is something like this. You know, the the thinking is, even though it's not voiced in such an explicit way, that a blind lawyer will require perhaps some amount of sighted assistance. So it would amount to hiring two people for a job that can be done by one. It will create avoidable complications. And since employees are at any rate a replaceable resource, law firms think they would be better off employing someone who can do the job in lesser time and with fewer complications. So how would you respond in your experience to this statement of cynicism? I think, um, so to answer your first question, why did I choose Perkins Cooey? And um, the the reason Mm -hmm. is that I I wanted to come back to Seattle um, and Perkins is the best law firm in Seattle. And it also has a track record of um, working on important uh, civil liberties cases. So a lot of the Guantanamo cases and so on. And so it it had, you know, kind of this commitment to, to values that I shared. And then also, um, it's a very, you know, it's quite a political firm, so it represents the Democratic Party. It's the law firm for the entire Democratic Party um, nationally and, and, and almost every member of Congress who is a Democrat. So, so there are a lot of reasons why the firm made sense, and they were tremendously supportive. Um, you know, I think it's not, I mean, I, I, you know, maybe it's cynical, but I think there is, there is some reality to this idea that, you know, the way the legal profession in, in, in big law firms operates, um, it, it's a crazy system. I mean, it's, you know, paying for time um, is, uh, leads to all kinds of oddball uh, downstream consequences. And so, um, you know, it's not, it's not a totally crazy thought, but, you know, what I would say is on top of the legal requirement not to discriminate, which is important, it's also that, you know, at the end of the day, what matters to clients is not, you know, did it take an extra hour or two here or there, though I would say with technology these days, I'm not even willing to concede that it will take longer. Yeah. I think that the, the, the disparities that you see, other skill sets uh, are, are probably greater than, than, than visual acuity when it comes to how long does it take to complete a project. Mm-hmm. Um, but but even, even insofar as it might require some extra assistance, 
I would say what the client wants is a favorable outcome. And so you want to hire the best attorney that will be able to deliver those outcomes for your client. And, and I would say, you know, the whole, all the work that's being done around diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think highlights the point that, you know, A, um, we've got extremely talented people with all different sorts of abilities and so on, and B, the perspectives that they bring are going to be valuable to having a well-rounded team, um, and C, that it also matters to clients. And I think that's one of the areas where to address the issue that you're talking about, where I think it's the way to, to really address this as a practical matter on top of the legal protections that are there is for clients to continue to push for their vendors, including their lawyers, um, to be more diverse and more representative. Right. So after your time at Perkins Coy and after teaching for a while at Seattle, you decided to leave the law entirely and join politics. Uh, was this because you felt constrained by the power of the law to effectuate change? Or were there other reasons at play that make you take this decision? And then the second part of my question is, were there any lessons that you learned during your time in the law that or any skills not lessons any skills that you learn that you still deploy on an everyday basis in the work that you do today yeah no i mean to the contrary it's not that uh, that um i went into the legislature because i became disillusioned with the ability of the law to change uh reality it's it's the opposite mm -hmm. i i I actually believe so strongly that the law can make a difference that I said, I want to become a lawmaker. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, that's what it is to be a legislator is to say, you know, let's go and, um, and, and sculpt the law to improve it. And, you know, and I, and I would, I guess what I would say I learned from my time um, practicing law, short time practicing law, um, as well as my time, making laws as a legislator before getting to this role, which is an executive branch role, is that I think oftentimes legislators and litigators are unaware of each other and of how, you know, the two, those two approaches to the law can be complementary. You know, to give you the example of the, um, the issue of making U.S. currency accessible to the blind, you know, there were, there were three legs to the stool in our battle to, to do that. One was litigation. So there was a lawsuit where the American Council of the Blind sued the Treasury Department saying this violates federal law. There was legislation, which is, you know, I, I, I went and testified in Congress on, you know, how can we do this? What, what, what are the ways in which we can make, um, you know, dollar bills, a $5, $10, a $20 bill, no tactilely distinguishable. And so there's that process. And then there was the third leg was public relations mm -hmm. and, and media and, and communication strategy go out there. So, and I, I got to participate in, in a small way in all three, you know, I participated in the litigation, I participated in the, in the legislative process and, you know, in writing an op-ed in the Washington post, you know, I, I, um, I think that I, by the way, I have to say, right? I, I'm fun. proud of the, I'm proud of, yeah, I'm proud of the title. So I want to say it's called show us the money, yeah. which for those who grow up, grew up watching movies in the nineties will be a, um, a, a pun they can appreciate. So those are the, the legs of the stool. And I think that oftentimes litigators are fighting and fighting, fighting, don't realize, you know what, at least at the state level, you might be able to get a bill through to just change the law 
uh, in the area that if you're doing affirmative litigation. And sometimes people focus so much on changing the law, they don't realize maybe there's um, a litigation strategy that can, if, if at the very least, bring the other side to the table to get a legislative fix. And then the outside game with the media can support all of these. So my next question is about uh, the fact that you are the first Iranian-American to have been elected to state office. And uh, and uh, at a time when political discourse is increasingly being characterized by around the world by the fear of the other, what lessons do you think can be learned from your story about how political discourse can be restructured in ways that help make it more inclusive and hope-based? Well, I think we're, you know, we're doing that every time we run and um, that we, you know, bring our perspectives. And I think, you know, it's a fine line because, you know, it, I think it is important that I identify as an Iranian-American, that I encourage and support other Iranian-Americans who want to run for office or even thinking about it and, and so on. At the same time, what makes Irish-Americans really, you know, kind of a, a non-controversial identity today is that they don't have to talk about Ireland. They can, you know, talk about higher education and healthcare and transportation and all those other things. So there's also this sense in which for us in the United States to be Iranian American um, shouldn't have to mean that the only things or the primary things that define our political identity is, you know, foreign policy in the Middle East or Israel or, or, or so on. So there is a there is a fine line because you you know on the other hand you know you don't want to disavow and you don't want to not speak up when you are given a position of of, uh, of visibility. So so I I try to accomplish that balancing act all the time. Same thing with my identity as a person with a disability. Um, And so, you know, and that's something I take a lot of encouragement from President Obama's example, you know, and I think he continues to be my role model in that sense as somebody who definitely as the most famous African-American alive um, has no, you know, issue and, and embraces being uh, a, a kind of a, a voice on racial issues. But, you know, his presidency was not a racial presidency. It was not an African-American presidency. It was an American presidency. So that's what I try to do. And then my last question to you is, are there, what, can you reflect on one decision that you've made since you were a Rhodes Scholar in hindsight that, that you're really proud of and one decision that you've come to regret? Well, the one that I'm very proud of, I think was, was, I'm so happy that I made this decision was after law school, you know, there was a lot of you know, social pressure to go to big New York and Washington, D.C. law firms mm-hmm. um, and, um, it, you know, that, that are perhaps better known nationally and internationally. Um, and I'm so happy that I came back to Seattle, not because of politics, but because uh, my father passed away in 2016 and I came back here in 2009. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really, really, really cherish those years, those seven years, um, where I, I got to live near him and, um, and my mom, and I got to spend that time with him, particularly the last three and a half years when he was battling cancer. And, uh, I'm so, so, so grateful that I wasn't, you know, in New York having to think about, okay, when do I fly back to see him? But I could just 
see him as often as I as I needed to and as I wanted to. So that's really uh, really meaningful. Um, I'll tell you a regret that I have from my Oxford time, um, which is, 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 you know, it's not on the same scale as, as what I just described, but it is a re- kind of a regret, which is I wish that I had found a way to go intern in parliament or, or somehow get exposure to British politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I did make British friends, including with undergraduates, and I, I was active in the Oxford Union and, and things like that, and I think that's really important. Um, and, and it was really enjoyable for me. Some of my closest friends uh, are uh, British uh, Oxford students that I met, but I didn't really get to know the country on, you know, in, in a political way, which was my, you know, passion and is my passion. I would have loved to have gone um, and in some way interned or worked in Parliament while I was there. And uh, I think I'll always regret not having done that. It would have been a really special experience. So I encourage those who are studying. Um, law or who are going to study law and are road scholars right now um, to to think about doing that. Thank you so much for, for agreeing to do this. And I will read the book recommendation that you shared. That's for sure. Thank you.